So we, we tried and we didn't succeed in building a new category. We had this concept a couple of years ago when we rebranded to Sapia that we were going to build this category around smart interviewer. And reality is it takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of commitment, consistency and focus. And we realized that we were too insular. We were too leading with our product rather than really leading with your problems. And so we've really pivoted now to focus less on the category and much more on here's the value that you get. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution Show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. All right, welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Uh, delighted to be joined today by Barb Hyman, who is the founder and CEO of Sapia.ai uh, and joining us all the way from Melbourne, Australia. How are you doing, Barb? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Alex. Good, good, good. I imagine it's pretty late there at the moment, but I think you're, you're, you're sort of you used to these You don't uh, even want to know. <laughs> Okay. You don't even want to know. <laughs> well, the lighting is the lighting is fine, but uh, I'm 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 assuming, given the the, the, the location, that it, it that it is a late one. And uh, good on you, and thank you for joining uh, uh, the podcast at uh, such a late hour. So great to have you on the show, um, Bob. We always ask our guests to you know introduce themselves, really, you know, get to know them a, l- a little bit better uh, for the listeners. So please do tell us uh, who is Bob Hyman. Well, I'm I'm. Probably the least likely person, if you look at my background, to be leading an AI company. Um, I, I'm very contrary in, in that regard. So I'm neither a software engineer nor a data scientist, uh, and I'm female and I'm over 50. Uh, and so when you compare that profile to the profile of most founders getting funding for AI businesses, I'm, you know, I'm certainly an alternate uh, profile. But what I have, and I guess what really defines me, is I come from having been in the seat of the customer that we're selling to. I was a former CHRO um, and I really know what their pain points are and their problems and I feel for them and I have empathy for them. And in a world where you're selling AI into HR, you know, it's it's pregnant with risk and fear and a lot of myths. Building trust is the most critical thing that you need to do with the prospect, with the customer. And I think that's what's enabled me to build a successful business. I'm also a mum of three, which is another part of my life that defines me and my leadership. Yeah, and, and obviously challenges, but great things with that uh, as, as well, with uh, having kids and running businesses and uh, uh, so on and so forth. Um, forgive my ignorance, what is a CHRO? Uh, it is a Chief HR Officer. So at the C-suite, HID is another way to think about it, Chief People Officer. It's a person that takes care of people and culture in organizations, ideally a report to the CEO. Yeah, and did you enjoy that role? Well, I kind of fell into it. You know, my career has been one of being opportunistic and not particularly planned. Um, and my background was initially as a lawyer, then I went and did an MBA and moved into strategy consulting at BCG. And then when I had kids, didn't want to do the travel, so I landed in an HR marketing role. So I've kind of just taken roles that were presented to me that looked interesting, that played into the things that I felt I could offer that were sort of unique. Um, and uh, and, and I, I did. I did. I wouldn't want to go back into it. I feel right now this is the best job I've ever had. Awesome, awesome. Uh, and so, so tell us then. Uh, you said obviously you sat in the seat of the customer, but uh, which might sort of lead into this. But what is the founding story behind Sapia.ai? It's very long, Alex. 
Uh, and to be honest, I think it's worthy of a book or a sitcom, so I'm going to save the long version. But the short version is when I was a CHRO first at Boston Consulting Group and then at a tech company, which was then the largest tech company in Australia, you know, reality is that your people, even though they're not on the balance sheet, they are your biggest asset. And it just struck me that the lack of science, the lack of data that goes into that decision was striking and the pervasive bias. Um, in the tech company, and a lot of tech companies are still like this, they won't look at you unless you look like them, which typically means you come from the same background. You know, I remember when I was in the tech company, if you hadn't come from a startup, even though this was a tech company worth billions of dollars that have been around for 20 years, they didn't want to know you. So there's a lot of conscious and unconscious biases, and I just felt there had to be a better way. And it also is a massive tax hiring. Um, you know, you think about how much time is spent, the invisible cost of hiring with all those hiring managers. It got to a point in my role at the tech company where my boss, the CEO, said to me, Barb, we're not going to hit our revenue targets because our engineers are so busy hiring and interviewing that we're not going to build the product. Um, so our roadmap won't get delivered. And so it became really business critical. Now, it may not be like this for every business, but to be honest, I think hiring is still very much stuck in you know, the way it was originally incarnated probably 50, 60 years ago. Um, why do you think, I mean, uh, I, I, I can assume, but why do you think that you're the best place to solve this problem that you're, you're building with uh, uh, Sapia AI? Well, it's not me alone. So I think what I bring is the empathy and the understanding of the challenge, but the actual idea of, well, how do you fix it in a very inventive, clever way is someone much cleverer than me, which is Booty, who's our chief data scientist. And, you know, I don't think innovation comes from within. And he came from a background at Culture Amp where he could see that the people you hire is what really determines your culture. It's very hard to shift your culture. And so he wanted to find a different way to inform hiring decisions. He also came with a PhD in natural language processing, and he could see that language has a lot of signal. Now we know that with generative AI, but back in 2018, we didn't know that. And so he really taught himself the science of people science, behavioral science. So our product is actually a genuine world-first innovation that brings together data science, the ability to bring NLP processing power together with behavioral science, understanding people and being able to measure those traits and competencies to be able to make you know, informed decisions around them. But everything we've done has been done differently. So we've challenged the resume. From my perspective, the resume should have died a long time ago. With generative AI, it really needs to die. Um, you know, it is really just a proxy for advantage. It doesn't tell you who someone is, and it's very easily faked. When you think about the experience of hiring and you compare it to another consumer experience, like applying for a bank loan, you know, why do you have to wait three weeks to get feedback? And mostly you won't get feedback. Why do you have to fill out copious forms? Um, why do I need to put in a resume and I get nothing back? You know, I think this idea that the recruitment process is designed for the organization rather than designing for the individual and the human experience fundamentally needs to be challenged. So along the way, I, I think, you know, I didn't know tech, right? And I don't know AI and its potential. And that's where Broody has been the innovation machine. You know, we've had an R&D team from day one. We've built a whole series of byproduct innovations as a function of our product that are probably worthy of their own markets in themselves. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it, it, the two of us are the perfect example that innovation comes from difference. We spar a lot, we disagree a lot, but we both bring something that has built a truly unique platform and product uh, for the market. And it, I, I guess uh, just picking up on what you said in terms of the, the resume, <clears throat> that being, you know, quite a dated 
uh, uh, format and, and your belief that it, it kind of needs to go, what, what would go in place of that? Um, because obviously, from what I see, and I, th- I think it's pretty standard, I'm, I'm sure you see it as well, people are hiring, companies are hiring, they uh, post the job, people apply with their resume and a covering letter, maybe a video, and it, it, that seems to kind of pretty much be standard in the market. What would you suggest uh, should be in place of the resume if we were uh, to get rid of that? Well, look, what we all do when we're hiring for any role is we, 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 we connect with the person, we interview them. And effectively, that's what we've built. We've scaled the science of a structured interview. A structured interview is if you ask the people that you're wanting to assess the same questions and you measure them against some rubric, some you know defined set of requirements. That's effectively what we're doing through our technology. So it's only five questions. There are questions that you might ask, Alex. Tell me about an incredible team that you're a member of. Like, what do you feel you took away from that? Can you share the best example you've ever had of engaging customers? You know, why, what made it so great? So you're asking people to share their experience. It's always something that taps into their past, not their, what they would do, because that's not predictive of anything. And so the whole construct of it is, apart from you're actually giving everyone an interview, rather than only the few that you've got capacity to interview, is it's designed to be dignifying, empowering. Um, it's built for inclusion. So there's independent research that shows that this technology will increase application rates from for women from women by 30% for tech roles when they know that it's AI. It is a total myth that people don't trust AI, they don't want AI. We see the complete opposite. We've had now almost 4 million candidates interviewed by this. So we're interviewing for you rather than you're doing the interview. We're assessing for the things that you care about. And so one of the things that you don't often do as a hiring manager is you don't really think about what am I looking for? What matters here? And so it forces you to identify what are the requirements for success in this role. Now, we're not a tech code assessment. Like we're looking for essentially the competencies around are you a good thinker? Are you someone that works wonderfully with people? Do you have self-awareness? Are you mature? Are you resourceful? Do you have outstanding communication skills? Whatever that composition is, we build effectively what we call rule-based models, which are looking for that DNA. They're very data-based. It's very transparent. We use a tool called Model Cards, which Google invented to give confidence around what the AI is doing. And we give you a score, but we also give you the why. And when you're using AI in the context of people, you have to give a why because otherwise no one's going to trust it. And so the resume goes. And what the candidate gets back, everyone, is a chance to learn. So we have also created a way for everyone to learn, to get coaching, to get feedback in a world where people typically get nothing. So another way that you could think about our product value is, I say this somewhat a little bit tongue-in-cheek, is we're kind of raising the collective self-awareness of humanity. People don't know themselves. They don't know their strengths. They don't know how to, how to articulate them. They don't get manager coaching. And so that's a byproduct feature that is why so many of our customers are consumer brands. You know, the largest retailers in Australia, Joe and the Juice, ESOP, a global luxury brand that's now owned by L'Oreal, Starbucks, where they're going to reject 100,000 people, maybe a million people, and they still want them to be their consumer when they're finished. So I'm very passionate about the product. I've probably given too much information on that. That's all right. You, you know, if uh, I mean the the founders, uh, you know, should be passionate about the product. So I wouldn't expect anything less. Um, uh, when was the company founded? 2018, uh, and we've raised US dollars around 25 million. 
um, we had in our last round Series A, I know your listeners always like to get a little bit of data, um, Series A, we had our largest customer actually invest in us, which was a great sign of, wow, this thing is really going to change the world. Um, and they're a very smart organization. They're called Woolworths. They own a massive data science house. So they get the value of AI in the business. And now they see the value of AI in people. And that's why so many of our customers are retail because they are further along the maturity path in understanding the power of AI and data uh, to drive business value. Um, and uh, we're at about 60 enterprise customers now. You know, typically we're working with businesses that are scale at scale. You know, they're hiring anywhere from 5,000 to 40,000 a year. Um, they're typically, you can use us anywhere, right? You can use us in tech companies to hire for values. So we're, we're kind of pretty broad, but you have to be really focused as a startup. And so we focus on retail, consumer brands, food and beverages, you know, where they really love the diversity impact and they love the experience that it that it represents for their brand. And, and so focus on enterprise, 60 enterprise customers. What's the typical ACV? Oh, look, it's six figures plus sometimes, you know, we're getting hopefully close. My ambition is how do we get to million-dollar customers uh, over the next 18 months. But, um, yeah, and they're, they're typically multi-year relationships because the value you get when you're using something like this, I think people don't really appreciate that AI is not just automation. In fact, automation is the low-hanging fruit. Um, what you get is the ability to learn. You're creating the system of intelligence for an organization. So what we do is we start year one, and pretty quickly you see the obvious value in efficiency, experience, diversity. But when we learn from who's actually performing well and time in role, like whether you stay six months, nine months, 12 months in these organizations is a really good proxy for fit. And the ability to take that data, feed it in and retrain the model to improve accuracy means that over time, we're actually kind of making ourselves a bit redundant because if you're hiring 20,000 now, usually at least half of those are replacement hires because you haven't figured out how to hire the right fit. We want to see that and what our customers see is that goes down almost to nothing. So that's where the huge business value is. If you can reduce turnover in an organization, there's like a flywheel of flow-on effects. You create better team cultures. You create a pipeline of more leaders, which means you get better quality leaders. You have better customer service. So solving for turnover through machine learning, it's like the Amazon model for people is what we're doing very cool very cool um well like build as we know you know building a business SaaS business is always full of challenges um and you know often these challenges are, are similar through you know uh, i guess many of the listeners here will be going through and facing a, a lot of the same things um but often they're also quite nuanced to the particular company and obviously the industry that you're in and the problem that you're trying to solve and and when you reached out uh, to me um uh, to to come onto the podcast and I, I, I really appreciate you doing that um you highlighted three of the challenges that you uh, in particular face and i think you touched on them a little bit you, you know in the intro to to yourself as well uh, as you sort of build and grow sapia so i think this is what we we kind of want to dig into and what these challenges are and how you're overcoming them um, and I think you, you said one is obviously selling a new science, uh, two, building a new category, uh, and then three, the challenges of raising capital as a female founder. So let, let's take them sort of in, in that order. Um, and and so I guess kind of like, like let's talk about the challenge of selling a new science and then how uh, you and Sapia are overcoming that. Well, that has been the biggest challenge and really being clever and 
constantly iterating our ICP. And our ICP is not just a segment, it's actually a buyer persona. And, you know, there's the early adopters, but to be honest, there aren't that many. What we look for is what we call the fast followers. And where do we find them? There's both a personality dimension to that. That could be someone who's a CHRO who is genuinely progressive. And to be honest, most aren't. Um, so it's quite a small, narrow set. Um, it could be someone that's new in the role. Um, it's someone who works in an organization where there's likely to be downward pressure to start to think about using AI. Um, so a lot of work has gone into what are the ideal conditions from a buyer persona, from a ICP that make this an easier conversation. And that is both work that gets done through the likes of a sales force, sales loft and targeting, but it also is a lot of filtering work by SDRs in the role. Um, so that's the first thing. The second is that in order to build trust, we realized that we needed to have credibility from others. So how do we credential ourselves in a world where no one knows what this thing is and it feels really scary and, you know, there are media reports every other day about AI is biased, which, by the way, AI is the only way of addressing human bias, right? And where these companies don't necessarily want to self-promote, they're using it either. There's still a lot of reservation around, do I really want to call out that I'm using this, particularly in the US? Um, so we decided that we were going to go with big consumer logos that people really trust because if they buy, and it's hard, you know, Woolworths today was announced as the company in Australia that has the highest amount of brand equity in the country. Um, and so it's the most trusted consumer brand. Qantas was another customer early on. So we felt if we can piggyback off their brand of trust, that's going to accelerate trust in us. So that was the first thing. We were very selective about who we wanted to take on as clients. The other one is that we invested in published research. So we've had probably seven or nine pieces of research, and it's a lot of effort for your R&D team to do that. It's unusual for a startup to have an R&D team to publish in peer-reviewed credible journals. And then the third thing was we actually just were ruthless about um, going for awards with our clients because it's cheap marketing. You know, we don't spend much on paid marketing. We really use our customer logos to build our own brand. And that enabled us to build traction and really trust. If they trust Sapia, then we can trust Sapia. So that was a big, you know, a big part of uh, what we focus on. But certainly the first one of identifying who are those people who are willing to embrace is still really tough. No, for sure, for sure. And it's just out of curiosity, um, uh, as you're you're selling this new uh, new platform to a, a new product service uh, to the CHRO, and you talked about um, getting the logos, so you're, you're getting that kind of authority and credibility to help for the follow-on customers. How how was it when getting that first customer? Obviously, if you, you don't have the logos, like how long was that sales cycle? How did you kind of manage to get that? You know, was there any help from VCs? Like, would love to just hear a little little story. There. No, it, it, I don't think there's any shortcuts in enterprise. You know, yeah. even at this stage where we are right now, it is there is no. You know, everyone talks about what's the sales playbook. Like, we're at Series A. I think the playbook will come into Series B. We are still like frigging hand to hand combat. You know, we are, it's a very competitive space. It's an unbelievably noisy space. Billions of dollars have gone into HR tech and HR loves the next shiny new thing. You know, I think there's a big influence in the space, Josh Burson, who talks about the average company, Fortune 500 company, has 80 tools in their HR drawer, most of which they're obviously not using. And so our strategy is more about revenue depth through product depth and going for big customers and getting big contracts that are trying to, trying to appeal to 
you know, a, a mid-market. Um, but at the beginning, Qantas did something like 10 pilots in a row before they signed on. And then, of course, COVID happened and there were no contracts and austerity measures. So there's a phrase that one of my board members has taught me, which I find challenging, but it's this concept of strategic patience. And, you know, you, you have to just sort of keep the faith. Um, and I look back now and I, I'm kind of every year I'm just shocked that we're still here. You know, it still feels like we're we're in this sort of in the gutter, um, you know, fighting to survive, even though we're very comfortable uh, from a business perspective, at least in terms of our cash flow and burn given our investors. Uh, but it's it's very early, this space, Alex. You know, the market is low maturity. You know, I go to the US and I feel that they are shrouded in ignorance and blinded by fear in that market around AI. So it's going to take a while for it to take off there. The UK is much more receptive. The UK is really genuinely passionate about diversity and we have you know, every customer is referenceable around diversity. So that's a market that we're actively investing in right now. So I think, you know, whilst we are comfortable with the moat that we've built um, and our data is our biggest moat, it's proprietary data, it's very unusual to have that. We are one of the three companies in Australia that built a large language model last year built based off that proprietary data. Um, you know, I, I have a level of strategic patience, but it, it, we put a lot of effort into CS. We're continually innovating. Um, so for me, it's not about getting to a thousand; it's getting to a hundred, and then you know, one hundred and fifty, and then two hundred. And and to be frank, to be selective about who we bring on, because you you invest a lot when you're working with a company from an AI perspective. It's not a set and forget. It's not put a system in place, see you later. There's an ongoing dialogue because someone needs to make decisions around things like retraining. You know, that's a very different tech sell to most tech sales where you're just selling and you move on and you're just selling new features when they roll out. Look, let, let's move on to the, the the building a new category challenge. Um, <clears throat> I think like over the last th- uh, few years, it's been very sort of a la mode for uh, you know companies to that are already in a pre existing category to try and you know reframe themselves and build a new category so they they can be the leader in in that category. It sounds like you actually obviously are doing something you know very new and you know creating a new category within. I guess the HR tech space, but yeah, tell tell me if, if if that is that is indeed true, um, and then as you're building the new category, what are the challenges, and then how how you're overcoming those? So we we tried and we didn't succeed in building a new category. We had this concept a couple of years ago when we rebranded to Sapia that we were going to build this category around smart interviewer, and reality is it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of commitment, consistency, and focus. And we realized that we were too insular. We were too leading with our product rather than really leading with your problems. And so we've really pivoted now to focus less on the category and much more on here's the value that you get, right? And that's what they resonate with. Like tick, 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 these are the things I care about. The product is kind of really recessive. Um, And maybe that will change in Series B where we'll have more funding from a marketing perspective to really put some grunt behind it. But to be honest, that was a poor decision to think that we could you know somehow cheaply build a category um so we've really pivoted that to focus much more on the value was, was that your decision to build a new category or was this obviously uh, perhaps influence from you know the vcs the board and um no yeah, the, well, the, we, don't, we don't we don't have a board that really gets involved in those they're involved in cap raisings and strategy around raising capital um, I mean, as a CEO, I have to take ownership of that. You know, it's one of many decisions that I've made that 
you know, was was a bad decision at the time and uh, we didn't throw too much money at it. But everything that you do that doesn't work is, is just an opportunity cost in terms of time. Um, and uh, I, I think we also didn't have we – we should have invested instead in extracting the testimonials out of our existing customers and leading with that rather than being so excited and proud and maybe a little bit cocky about the brilliance of what we'd invented and leading with that. So we've moved away a lot from the science as a message to market and the product as a message to market and really focusing on this is what you get and those are problems that people can really connect with. And the, the third and final challenge uh, was about the challenges of raising capital as a female founder. Now, as you mentioned your Series A, $25 million, That's a very healthy Series A. So therefore, I'm assuming you've probably done a, a pre-seed, a seed, and you know uh, moved on to the Series A. Uh, so I guess kind of obviously on the, the, the outside, it, on, fa- on face value, it looks like you, you've had some uh, great success there, and, uh, and, and clearly you have. Um, but what have been the challenges uh, there that you faced as a, as a female founder? Look, I, I kind of feel a bit odd talking about it as a woman, um, but reality is my gender has really shaped me um, and uh, having two girls as well, I think a lot about what opportunities it presents and maybe how it might also present barriers. I mean, most of the world from a leadership perspective in organisations is male. Um, you know, there was a stat a few years ago that there were more men called John who were CEOs of listed companies in Australia than there were, were women. I think it's a little bit better now. Uh, in the VC world, it's it's way more imbalanced. Something like 3% of funding goes to women when I think they represent about a third. And mirror hiring is a concept that we're trying to tackle in our space, but mirror investing is just the same. And, uh, you know, I, I think I'm probably different in the way I, I'm very connected to the story. I'm connected to the buyer. Um, I'm connected to the value. And... Uh, I, I, you know, I'm probably not good at self-promoting and inflating, you know, the story as well as maybe some others do who are possibly younger and maybe have the naivety to just go for it. You know, I think my my age gives me a little bit more pause in terms of how I represent it because for me, if if we've got integrity with customers, we need to have integrity with VCs and I've always felt that even if they've got lots of money, they might be billionaires, they're still making a choice to back you. And it's very much a personal you. And so being really respectful of that and leaving work every day, knowing that we've honored that trust is as important for the investor as it is um, for the customer. So maybe I don't project in the same way with the same narrative. Um, You know, I, I think it's really unfortunate that the VC world are not embracing technology like ours to try and create a much more diverse community of founders. You know, there's a lot of attention on that in Australia where the largest VC has been called out for that. There is independent research, Alex, that said that you can profile a founder. So, you know, we would love to give that away to every VC. Any VC who's listening to this and wants to use that as a way to discover the founder profile um, before someone walks in the room because it's blind um, and more people will participate in that than not because they don't have the fear that they're going to be rejected. Like it could transform the VC sector. Um, But yeah, it's been a challenge of finding the right fit. People who really connect with me personally and my story. And I think that's a smaller group than maybe what males uh, might connect with. And and, and with the the, the 25 million Series A, uh, you know, can you share maybe how long the process took, how many VCs that you spoke to 
did uh, you know uh, uh, the the final kind of lead investor uh, that that you settled on? You know, was that from Australia or was this you know from outside? Maybe just a little bit of um, you, you know the story around that. We we just went local. Um, so the Series A, um, just trying to do the conversion here, was less than the twenty five because we did raise some money before that and seed, as you said. Um, it was Macquarie Bank. Macquarie Bank is the largest investment company, um, investment house in Australia. They've got a global reputation. They're an incredible business, actually a female CEO, which is very unusual for an investment bank. And they are long-term users and believers in the science of assessment, which is effectively what we're doing. We're just doing it in a very unique um, human way. And so they looked at this and thought, wow, um, if this can do it better, from an experience point of view and solve all of these other challenges around organizations, that's going to change the landscape. So they came from a pedigree of knowledge around the space, which I think is really meaningful. It gave it, gave it more credibility as well for us. Um, I spoke to a lot of VCs locally um, and we raised last year. So it was a tough year, you know, from the perspective of how the market was going and now we've got Macquarie, they've got deep pockets, they're an amazing investor to have. You know, you make these trade-offs about do I just go to them for more money because their balance sheet is the bank's balance sheet or do we go externally to get a different VC? I, I think I was much more attached to the VC um, from the US 12 to 18 months ago than I am now. Now I just feel like I know this business the best. I have an amazing leadership team. We can figure this out. Do I really need that, you know, brand that VC brand on our register. I'm, I'm less attached to that than I was 18 months ago. Well, let's move into the the quickish fire round. Um, and uh, can you tell me uh, what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career? Uh, being opportunistic, um, listening to my friends more than I listen to my inner voice about what to do. Uh, what about the best advice you've ever received? So... Quick story, when I was at high school, we had this wanted for poster that existed for each of us. And the one that was attached to me was Barb Hyman, wanted for disturbing the peace. So I've always been a bit of a bruiser in that way. And I think the best piece of advice is just own, own, own who you are, right? Rather than try and dial it down, you know, your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. So I think just really authenticity and owning, owning who you are and claiming that. I like that. Um, what about the biggest mistake you've made and lesson learned? So when you think about an organization and whether you want to be part of that organization, you think about, can I do this job? Is this a team I want to be part of? Is this the right culture? And I took a job where one and two were ticked, but the third on reflection was not. It was a culture that did not suit me. You know, I have a strong bias for action. I don't like admiring the problem. I want to get shit done. And I walked into a business that was very comfortable, um, very successful, where the biggest value and trait was psychological safety. And I don't think there's such a thing as psychological safety in being in a startup, which is why I'm in this environment for me. Uh, and it was a wrong fit for me. So it was a bit like organ rejection syndrome. I just couldn't be myself and I couldn't do what I wanted to do in that environment. So I think you've really got to look at the fit between not just you and the team and whether the job excites you, but is this a culture that's really aligned to who I am and my values and how I like to work? Yeah, very true. Um, uh, what about your favorite, do you, or do you have a favorite book on entrepreneurship and what is it and why? Look, I, I guess I just read books by people I really uh, find inspiring rather than necessarily focus on entrepreneurship. Um, 
Margaret Heffernan, I don't know if you've heard of her, has written a number of books. She's this amazing academic, US academic, one called Willful Blindness, which I highly recommend. She also has a TED talk about the importance of social capital to create high-performing teams rather than hierarchy and, and lots of leaders running around. Um, Ginny Rometty, who used to be the CEO of IBM, has also written a wonderful book, which I found really inspiring. And um, I listened to your podcast. And there's one other one that I, I, I'm really loving, which is Acquired, which goes very deeply into stories of businesses, which is quite quite amazing. Cool. Um, very good. I, I'll have to look at uh, those books. Uh, you said Margaret Hefner was it, and then uh, Ginny uh, Rometty, right? So yes, yes, um, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to check those out. Um, well, obviously, obviously, you're on a call uh, or on the podcast with me quite late. So uh, curious around this one. What time do you start and finish work? Look, I. It's just there's no distinction. You know, I'm always on. I, it's very hard to switch off. I am a workaholic, um, and I used to hide it. Um, now I don't um, from the team. I have made a habit of trying not to do messages on Slack on weekends. Um, but, you know, I travel a lot for work, so it's easy for me to get away with sending Slack messages at strange times. So, um, you know, the one thing I try and do is when I'm with my kids is really put the phone away, really be present. Um, and uh, But other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm just – you can't just associate from what's going on in the business. It's impossible. What do you do then for your, your kind of mental health and wellness, um, you, you know, given, I guess, kind of what you have to give to the business, right? And as you said, you can't sort of disassociate the long hours. You, you know, it, it can take its toll. So what, what do you do? Well, I tell myself I do yoga, but I actually haven't been very much in the last few years. So I'm trying to make a commitment to do that. Um, and uh, hanging with the kids. Kids are a great tool for just bringing you down to reality because they don't let me take myself too seriously. Okay, very good. It's very good. They can cause other stresses, or certainly mine can, depending on the age. Mine is uh, mine are seven and eight, so uh, um, yeah. But uh, I, I do enjoy the downtime with them. Um, well, Bob, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find you online if they want to reach out? What, what what's the, the the best way to do that? Yeah, just just uh, follow us on LinkedIn, Sapia.ai, or uh, you can connect with me, Bob Hyman, on LinkedIn. That's where I spend most of my social time. Awesome. Well, Barb Hyman, CEO, founder of Sapia.ai, thank you so much for reaching out to me in the first place and joining me at this uh, late hour to, to come on to the SaaS Revolution show. Really appreciate it. You're sharing your story. Congrats on the success so far and uh, looking forward to see where you go. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Alec. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learn something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.